This is Peter Coleman. I'm professor of psychology and education at Columbia University. Uh, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing a colleague of mine, Mark Levy, who is deputy director of SEASON, which is the Center for International Earth Science Information Network, which is housed at the Earth Institute at Columbia. He is trained as a political scientist, and he has published extensively in sustainability, in environment security connections. That's particularly what we'll talk about today is the connection of some of his work on sustainability and its connection to conflict processes and prevention of conflict. Um, he leads work on water conflict linkages, on drivers of emerging in infectious diseases, climate vulnerability, and other projects seeking to understand better the human-environment interactions uh, in the context of global change. He also coordinates Season's work for the Millennium Villages Project out of the Earth Institute. Professor Levy, thank you for coming. Thank you, Peter. So um, I thought today we'd begin by talking a little bit about how we met. Mark and I first met uh, uh, when we were both uh, on a fact-finding mission in Haiti with Jeff Sachs, uh, looking at the time just at some of the vulnerabilities, environmental vulnerabilities, some of the past conflicts that had emerged there, and looking at some development efforts there. And this was uh, approximately two or three months prior to the, the last earthquake. Um, and so the Earth Institute had been involved in a variety of different initiatives there at the time. But after the earthquake, um, all of the needs, all of the concerns sort of shifted um, as you Recall the uh, environment was uh, in crisis, the government collapsed. Uh, um, so at that time, the Earth Institute faculty and staff sort of regrouped and started to think about what could we do. And Mark and I got involved uh, in a specific project amongst other projects, which was trying to understand land reform uh, dispute processes. So as you can imagine, in countries like Haiti, where you have some ambiguity in terms of land ownership, when there is a great deal of um, a destruction as it has happened in the earthquake and there's a need to rebuild and set up new hospitals and, and refugee camps, um, the question of who owns the property becomes salient and how do you negotiate that was the sort of question that we started to explore. So we worked together to begin to understand, well, what are the laws that exist there? What are the processes that exist there? What are effective processes, ineffective processes? So Mark has been leading a project on that that's connected to a couple of other projects that he's in. So maybe you can just give us a, a quick a little background on the, on the project. Sure. Um, one of the things we did when we first started working in Haiti was to do an extensive review of all the previous activities in the country to get a sense of the, the lessons learned from prior efforts. And one of the clear things that emerged from that exercise was that insecurity over land tenure was a major problem holding back progress across a, a wide range of development issues, both in the urban areas and in the countryside. And although people agreed on the long-term solution for the land tenure problem, which is a, you know, a full, open, transparent system of land ownership, with clear titles to land that are well-documented um, and enforceable in a variety of legal systems that are accessible to people, uh, there was no agreement on the right steps to move in that direction. Uh, it's not the kind of thing you can do overnight. Um, and the path to get there from a condition of you know, chaos and uncertainty 
um, is often dangerous. And, and there's a lot of experience where countries have taken steps to improve uh, access to land, uh, security of tenure, and so on, and actually made things worse because they, they complicate what was a, a somewhat um, stable equilibrium beforehand. And let me uh, say, I think it was true that even before the earthquake, there was a fair amount of uncertainty around land ownership. I, I think, as I recall, Port-au-Prince was built as a city of, for 200,000 people, and it grew to a city of several million people, and much of that were um, squatters who would find a piece of property and sort of set up, right? That's right, and, and various efforts were made uh, over the years to solidify the new status quo at different times, um, but the, the country is going through such rapid change that none, none of those things ever uh, resulted in lasting success. Um, so what we did in partnership um, with you and your group was to do a, a survey of what the existing mechanisms were. Uh, you know, how do people who face a potential conflict over land deal with it in the real world, you know, given all the inadequacies of their situation? Um, and then to uh, start thinking about comparing that status quo to a range of uh, actions that have been undertaken in other settings around the world, um, which have been shown to result in significant but modest progress. So that they move the ball in the right direction, even if they don't get you all the way across the goal line. And um, one of our judgments was that land tenure had become kind of a third rail of Haitian politics that was so incendiary that people just were afraid to touch it. And as a result, there was very little concrete activity, certain, certainly in terms of how it affects people's lives. Um, and this seemed to us a mistake. And so we wanted to, to take stock of what was going on and what could be done and to draw attention to some you know, realistic actions that could actually improve people's lives. So at some point, you decided to focus on a particular area that you had been working in in the South. Right. The um, another judgment we made was that this was not something that that we, as a research group, would be able to um, contribute to if we moved straight to the national level. The the politics there are, are too complicated for someone like us to to enter in at the beginning. So we had been working on an integrated rural development project in the southwest part of the country, um, and thought that this would make a nice kind of pilot area to, to look at, uh, relatively far away from the capital, therefore a little bit more removed from national politics, but facing all the problems that beset the rest of the country. So if we could identify some potential useful solutions there, um, then they would probably be relevant to the national scene as well. So that's what we've been doing the last uh, year and a half. And so when the earthquake hit, the epicenter was near Port-au-Prince. And was the area that you started to work in affected by it as well? It wasn't affected directly by the earthquake, um, but it did become an area where many people moved to from Port-au-Prince. Um, there's a, a natural process within the country of people moving around as one hazard or another hits, whether it's a landslide, a hurricane, or in this case, an earthquake. So it's a social coping mechanism that's well ingrained in the society. So we estimate that about uh, a 25% increase in the population 
uh, happened in the months after the earthquake, mm. which itself put great strain on the region, including uh, disputes over access to land. Um, that's now reversed, and uh, it's back more or less to its pre-earthquake population. Now, Mark, you were there at the, during the last earthquake, yes? Yes, I was in Port-au-Prince uh, with my colleagues um, uh, during the earthquake and was able to get out um, 48 hours afterwards. And can you just give us a, some sense of what that was like? I mean, we've read about it, but uh, it seems like it must have been an extraordinary and, and, and terrifying experience. Yeah, I, I think, you know, of all the people who experienced the earthquake directly that day, I probably had, you know, one of the, the least terrifying experiences. Um, I was lucky to be in a place that didn't suffer traumatic, direct structural damage. So the building I was in did not collapse. So that was my first uh, stroke of fortune. Um, and I happened to be in a, uh, a building that was serving as a base for many of the UN operations. So we were surrounded by people with satellite phones, uh, experience working in disaster situations, um, uh, somebody, a physician from Partners in Health who was able to administer first aid to the people who needed it. Um, and after the first night, we were taken to the logistics base uh, near the airport in a convoy. You know, obviously that was a, a set of conditions that, you know, virtually no one else in the country was able to face. Nonetheless, you're right, it was a terrifying experience to see that much suffering happen so fast um, all around me. So you alluded to the fact that Haiti is uh, um, a geographical location that has suffered multiple hurricanes, landslides, environmental degradation, and a series of earthquakes, and this was the, la the la latest. Um, do you, it, what was your sense of the population that you started to work with? Is there you know, an extremely traumatized population, or are these a resilient people that just respond to these kinds of conditions? I think it's a little of each. Um, the, they are highly resilient. Um, they never give up. Um, and one of the things that struck me the day after the earthquake when we were moving in this convoy to the, the UN base um, was how the streets of Port-au-Prince were full of people actively doing something. Hmm. Uh, they weren't just sitting around waiting. Um, they were very busy. They were moving to help family members, um, to try to locate food and water. They were, the city was extremely active. Um, they weren't shell-shocked. Um, that said, they have suffered a lot, and, um, and there is a sense of, of weariness when you talk to them in depth. Um, they use an expression of always sleeping with one eye open, mm. uh, you know, never knowing what the next crisis will be and when it will hit. Um, and... Uh, and there's a sense that it's just, uh, you know, a very tough existence that they acknowledge at the same time as that they, uh, you know, they face the struggles as best they can. Extraordinary. So, um, so now your group is working in the South, and you've attempted to understand what are the local processes that people use to resolve these kinds of disputes over land. What have you learned, and what, what are, uh, how is the project moving forward? Well, it was interesting. We, we, um, we always talk to people at a variety of different uh, levels and stations in life. Um, and so the people at the official level, um, in the capital and in the regional municipal offices, tended to tell us that 
uh, conflict over land was not a big problem, that um, it's not something that we had to actively worry about. And they would point to the existing official mechanisms available to people uh, who did face a conflict over land. And there are such mechanisms in place. Um, however, as we kind of moved down the chain and, and talked to people um, you know, in the field who were actually experiencing these conflicts directly, we got a very different story. Um, so there was, on the one hand, a lot of confusion about the most appropriate or effective or legitimate pathway towards re resolving these conflicts. Should they go to the local justice of the peace? Should they go to the regional magistrate? Should they go to the local elder? Should they go to the voodoo priest? Um, uh, there was not clarity on the right way to go. And, and this made for a lot of anxiety. Um, even if somebody did take steps to try to resolve a conflict through official means, they, what we constantly were told was that there was never a satisfaction that it had actually been resolved. There was always a fear that the other party uh, would try to upset the agreement through another means. Um, and oftentimes we were told that these um, disputes, once they went through all the official channels, uh, would have the conflicting parties then go to competing voodoo priests who would put spells against the relevant families. Mm. And this would um, affect people in a really profound way. They would live in a state of, um, of kind of um, generalized fear that something bad was going to happen because of this. Uh, so there was a lot of unhappiness over the existing mechanisms and, and lots of examples where conflict over land was really quite potent. Were the conflicts uh, typically between two individuals over land, or did it ever evolve into other, you know, ethnic group differences or class differences in terms of land ownership and disputes? So the the most common form of conflict in the countryside is um, over inheritance, hmm. and um, so what will typically happen is, in the absence of clear uh, official mechanisms for clarifying ownership to land, you have uh, customary practices that work for a while, but they accumulate over generations. And then at some point, things get complicated enough that you need to resolve a conflict. Often it'll be a family member who inherited right to a piece of land, but moved to the U.S., say, for a long time, or Port-au-Prince for a long time, and then has decided to come back. Um, and so they'll force the issue. Um, the ethnic conflicts are not really a major problem here. Um, class conflicts are. And um, so you would often have the, uh, you know, not surprisingly, the, the privileged uh, individuals would have an ability to leverage the available mechanisms in their favor much more successfully than the, the weaker parties and and this was another in incurring you know recurring problem can you can you elaborate just a minute on um, uh, you, you mentioned the use of, of voodoo priests for revenge and uh, I remember uh, as I left Haiti on that trip I ran into the the representative from the uh, world food program who was there and one of the things he said to me is that as they entered they were at that point I think feeding two million people a day, and they were 
but initially they were stymied as to how to distribute food, how to get things out, and it really took um, eventually the discovery of a network of voodoo priests who were really hubs in the communities, and that through those priests they could eventually find ways to coordinate, distribute food. But it took them a long time to get there because there was a lot of oftentimes sort of denial of the presence of voodoo or the practice of voodoo. So it's a, in some ways it's a, a hidden culture, a, a very live and prevalent but hidden culture. Now, do you, have you experienced that in your work on, on these disputes? Um, yeah. The, um, it, it varies across the country. And, you know, the Catholic Church is very prominent there. The, the Protestant church are very, churches are very prominent. Um, a lot of the evangelical churches are, are quite active. Um, and then there's voodoo that kind of runs below the surface and on the surface in many places. And so how it plays out in any one location depends on how all these things are, are coming together. Mm. Um, so the, the, the way in which they become relevant for the work we're doing is um, primarily as allies in uh, providing direct health care mm. uh, to people. Um, so one of our goals is to um, try to get each um, birth taking place in the presence of a skilled birth attendant because maternal mortality is quite high and child mortality is high. Um, right now, the voodoo priests are often the one of the primary sources of um, advice on, on medical issues and on uh, childbirth. Um, so we're actively trying to enlist them as allies and, and give them things that are useful to them uh, as opposed to trying to supplant them. And that model seems to be working, you know, relatively effectively. Um, on the land tenure case, uh, you know, we've identified how it can be an issue. We haven't yet been able to figure out exactly how to uh, incorporate it into uh, solutions yet. The, the solution, working towards solutions, is something that will take, you know, full engagement from all the community members. Um, and so that's the next stage of our work. And what are the, what is, what are the next steps towards that? So we have written um, an initial report based on uh, qualitative field studies uh, that we've done with your group. And um, we are about to launch a quantitative um, survey of households to get much more detail on the, the nature of the land tenure problem, uh, you know, much more specifically. And Following that, we will produce a, uh, a more complete report that ties together the insights from the, the qualitative and quantitative work and this international best practice gap analysis that we've done um, to lay out a, a kind of roadmap, not a set of solutions, um, but a set of steps that can be taken to uncover solutions that the community will be comfortable with. Um, some of the things that we're putting on the table to be considered uh, include um, you know, training for, for judges and justices of the peace and local officials in the existing land law, um, assistance to families who need help uh, resolving a, a conflict, um, a documentation of existing claims to ownership uh, using informal and expensive mechanisms, um, uh, providing, you know, computer capacity to the local uh, legal offices. Right now, every single record is on paper. Mm. 
and uh, somebody has to write out by hand each of the copies. I think they have to make about five copies of each decision. Um, and uh, so these things are, they're not filed. There mm-hmm. can be no discovery because there's no way to search them. Uh, they're easily lost or, you know, they can catch on fire or succumb to mold. Uh, so a simple digitization exercise would probably go a long way as well. Mm-hmm. So how long have you been working in Haiti? Uh, I started in early 2009. And has Seasons been there before that? We had not been there before that. The other parts of the Earth Institute had been there going back to 2005. Mm-hmm. And is there anything p- particular about your experience there that's really surprised you or struck you as uh, unlike other places you've worked? It's it really everything surprises me. And now that I've been there for over three years, um, been working there over three years, you know, I've had the experience of accompanying many other newcomers to Haiti, and the the reaction is always the same. They are just completely dumbfounded that um, things as bad as this can be going on, you know, in the world today, much less so close uh, to the, a place like the United States. Um, and you see these things in terms of the you know, the ecology and the landscape. Um, entire riverbeds are being washed out to sea in single storm events. One of our first exercises in 2009 was to tour an area that had been especially hard hit by the the string of three hurricanes in 2008. And um, it was, you know, just really shocking to walk the banks of the new riverbed, which was about a mile across, which before the storm had been about 20 yards across. And all of that land had been occupied by families, uh, some of the best farmland in the area, mm. just washed out to sea in a single storm. Um, you see it socially with the you know, 70% poverty rates. Um, it's the highest poverty rate in the Western Hemisphere, is it It's yeah. pretty virtually the highest in the world. Mm. It's... Um, uh, and that's being, you know, so close to so much wealth. Um, 90 minutes from Miami. Right, yep. right. Um, the, you know, the energy system, the, you know, the majority of people's primary source of energy is wood. Uh, you know, it's a, um, it's a Stone Age, you know, energy source hmm. uh, taking place, you know, in the 21st century. Um, and And so many of these... You know, the, the educational system is, is equally bizarre. The, they had a relatively decent public education system through the mid-1980s. As the political instability unfolded, that system collapsed. So now the only source of education for most families is private schooling, um, which uh, is expensive for them. But it's, it's not well-financed because these people are very poor. So the teachers are not well-paid. Um, and so the teachers are actually not very well educated. They're not trained to do good education. Um, and so you have the poor families desperately saving to send their children to school um, because they have no other choice and therefore engaging in you know, quite desperate acts to raise the money to pay for the tuition for their children. Uh, so when we interview people about charcoal production and cutting of trees for charcoal. You know, we consistently get a story that there's a spike of charcoal production 
the month before tuition payments are due mm. uh, because that's the only guaranteed way that most people can actually get cash on the table is to go cut down trees. Uh, and obviously, you know, over time, this undermines their ability to secure a safe livelihood. It leads to soil erosion, to flash floods, and so on. Um, so all of these, um, you know, vicious cycles layered one on top of the other uh, certainly, you know, are a, a jolt to the conscience when you, when you first see it. So, Mark, in, in the context of this environmental catastrophes, set, set of catastrophes and the social challenges, the, the extreme poverty, um, are there pockets of optimism? Are there pockets of hope that you see in your work? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's a part of the human condition to, to find optimism wherever it may be, and Haiti is, is no exception. Um, one of the tragedies of the earthquake was that it came at a – local peak in optimism around the world. And people had um, gotten the sense that this was the time to, to make a lasting big difference in Haiti. Um, the political situation had become relatively stable. The gangs had been beaten back. Um, there was a sense that the international community was ready to live up to its responsibility. And then after the earthquake, everything had to be reevaluated. And that optimism was redoubled after the earthquake, but oriented towards, you know, um, reconstruction from the earthquake damage. Uh, a lot of that experience has been pretty difficult. And so there's, I think, undercurrents of pessimism from the slow pace of progress and the sense that um, some of the money hasn't been well spent. There's been some corruption that's fairly clear. Uh, there's been some slowness on the part of donors to live up to their pledges. That's also clear. Um, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around. Um, and so, you know, in my darkest moments, I sometimes can imagine the pessimism really taking over and wondering, you know, maybe it'll take some other miracle for this to really turn around. But then you spend time talking with the people who are working, you know, day after day to to turn things around, and and you can't hope you can't help but uh, want to enlist yourself as a partner in their quest for solutions here and now that will last. And there's plenty of that going on. So I'm hoping that you know the positive version of this story is that we will eventually recover from the trauma of the earthquake not only physically, but psychologically, socially, and, po and politically, um, and then be able to you know, harness the, the great ideas, the hard work, uh, the creative uh, spirit that's underway um, to put all the pieces together and turn things around. Our guest has been Mark Levy. Mark is the Deputy Director of Seasons, which is the Center for International Earth Science Information Network, uh, housed at the Earth Institute at Columbia. Mark, thank you so much for coming, and thanks for the great work you do. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Peter.